Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the latest news, tune into your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. I'm Todd Willick, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A podcast. Let's jump into the news roundup. This is 1A. President Biden is now considering an executive order on abortion rights, he says. That's after the Senate failed to codify those rights into law this week, leaving the practice more vulnerable than ever ahead of a likely Supreme Court ruling that overturns Roe v. Wade. Now, poll after poll has found that most Americans don't want Roe thrown out completely. But Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell told NPR that's not the point. For the Supreme Court to on any issue to reach a decision contrary to public opinion is exactly what the Supreme Court is about. It's to protect basic rights, even when majorities are in favor of something else. It happens all the time. We'll get into what's next for abortion rights in America. Plus, we check in on the economy, the January 6th hearings, and a Twitter deal that might now be on hold Joining me today is Anita Kumar. She's the Senior Editor of Standards and Ethics at Politico. Anita, welcome. Great to be back with you. Shane Harris covers intelligence and national security at The Washington Post. Shane, always good to talk to you. Hey, Todd. And Molly Ball is here. She's Times National Political Correspondent. Molly, it's always a pleasure, as you know. Hi. Hi. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. Guys, let's start on Capitol Hill, because this week, Senate Democrats tried, and they failed, of course, to codify Roe v. Wade. Uh, The Women's Health Protection Act would have guaranteed access to abortion under federal law. The vote in the Senate was 49 to 51, i.e. not even close. It would have needed 60 to break a Republican filibuster. Senator Joe Manchin, the Democrat from West Virginia, sided with Republicans on that vote. Here's the vice president, Kamala Harris, just after the vote. The majority of the American people believe in defending a woman's right, her choice, to decide what happens to her own body. And this vote clearly suggests that the Senate is not where the majority of Americans are on this issue. It also makes clear that a priority for all who care about this issue, a priority should be to elect pro-choice leaders at the local, the state, and the federal level. Because what we are seeing around this country are extremist Republican leaders who are seeking to criminalize and punish women from making decisions about their own body. Uh, Molly, the Democratic Party is under immense pressure here to protect abortion access as we await the Supreme Court's ruling. Uh, But that pressure sort of crashes on the rocks of what we talked about just before the vice president, which is 60. That's the reality. What maneuvering, uh, what room do Democrats have to deliver something on abortion rights? As the vice president says, the majority of the public would be with them here. Yeah, the majority of the public, though, although, although as that vote uh, demonstrated, they don't even have a, a majority of the Senate, uh, at least on the bill that was put forward this week to uh, codify a right to abortion in federal law. You know, they didn't even get 50 votes, much less 60. So so the filibuster is not the issue there. There is the potential that a, a more narrow Uh, type of bill guaranteeing some sort of right to abortion could have gotten more than 50 votes. And there's a lot of disagreement about Democrats on what is really a matter more of political strategy than legislative strategy at this point. Uh, Because of the 60 vote threshold, there isn't 
uh, much ability. Uh, you know, there aren't 60 votes for really any kind of, of abortion rights in the Senate. And so this is much more about trying to send a message to voters about what the parties stand for and trying to make this an issue in this year's midterm elections and, and potentially even more so uh, in state elections, right? Since uh, if the decision goes uh, the way the Alito uh, draft opinion suggested, uh, the issue would be thrown back to state legislators, to governors. Uh, it would be much less a matter of federal law unless, you know, the the um, the, the House and Senate uh, do find a way to act on it. Uh, but and, and you have a lot of Democrats saying, well, why did we choose this relatively more partisan measure that can't even get 50 Democrats on board uh, versus, you know, there there are uh, more limited measures. There's, there's one even that, that has been uh, proposed by the uh, pro-choice Republican senators, Murkowski and Collins, uh, but Democrats chose not to go that route. And so now that you have a lot of arguing and squabbling uh, inside the party about, you know, does, does, is this, you know, playing into the hands of Republicans who are painting Democrats as extreme on this issue, even though, uh, as you said, you know, the public opinion is, is quite solidly on the side of some form of abortion rights. I want to talk about what happens when abortion rights go to the state level, if in fact that happens, as we read in Justice Alito's draft, that's what he wants. Take this fight to your state legislatures. But Anita, let's talk about the midterms first. The vice president was just there saying, this shows you have to elect more pro-choice Democrats. Um, Does that message sink in? A lot of Democrats are in the background saying, no, 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 you've got to say specifically, give us two more Democratic senators. We will nuke the filibuster. We will protect abortion rights. That's the promise. You don't hear Democrats at the top really saying that. I think you're hearing everything from Democrats right now. I mean, they really want uh, to use this as an issue that's going to get Democrats elected both at the state level, and we'll talk about how important that is for this, but also at the federal level. I mean, yes, there are different there are different messages there on who they need to elect, but I think that they are using this now as sort of this number one thing. You know, the president said this week, you know, don't get distracted by other things like inflation. Let's look at this issue. This is an issue that's really important. You're going to hear him talking about this a lot more. The vice president. Um, up and down, you know, the tickets everywhere. And I I think that they feel like, of course, they don't want this to happen. Of course, we are hearing protests from them, but they do feel like this is an issue that they can use for for some success in November. Shane, uh, sending this decision back to state legislatures, I I think at the the bottom line of the uh, draft opinion from Justice Alito is, hey, voter, Go back to your state legislatures. You want abortion access? Vote in the people who support that, and that's called democracy. I think that sounds really good unless you live in a place like Wisconsin where where there's a narrow Democratic majority of voters, but the state legislature is so gerrymandered, there is no hope of having the legislature respond, if you're pro-choice, let's say, having the legislature respond to your views on that. Not in this decade. It's not going to happen. Yeah, and many states have these what are called trigger laws in place that if Roe were ever overturned, anticipating the eventuality or the possibility that essentially abortion then becomes illegal in that state. And so if this decision in the Mississippi case goes through as Justice Alito has written it, 
you know, essentially at that moment, the United States becomes a place of a, a patchwork of laws where some states abortion is either outlawed or heavily restricted. In some cases, uh, access is fuller uh, and state legislatures will undoubtedly take various actions and have debates. But, you know, the fundamental kind of holding in Alito's rationale is this is something that is properly left up to the people to vote for. What abortion rights activists, though, would say is, hold on a second, this is actually a matter that's inherent as a constitutional right. We don't put constitutional rights up for a vote to state legislatures. That's always been the crux of the debate, and I think it's one reason why Democrats are rallying around this now uh, as such a cause, as Anita said, um, because it kind of goes to the heart of this expectation of a constitutional right that people have had for so long. At the same time, you know, we should remember that many pro-abortion rights, abortion rights activists have long felt that the Democrats have kind of slept on this issue and have taken for granted that Roe would always be there and have been very frustrated that the left didn't make the Supreme Court and abortion rights more of a, of a galvanizing force the way Republicans did. And I feel like they feel like they're reaping what they sowed now. We're talking to Politico's Anita Kumar, Times' Molly Ball. That's Shane Harris of The Washington Post. Uh, Molly, the president has warned, and he's not alone, that gay marriage could be next if you take the logic of this ruling. He told a DNC fundraiser in Chicago this week. If you read the opinion, he said, basically, it says there's no such thing as the right to privacy, the president said. Mark my words, uh, if they're going to go after same-sex marriage next. Um, what about that logic? There's no way to know exactly where the court goes, but there's a lot of fear of that, at least among people who support same-sex marriage. Yeah, well, the the implications of this decision, if it is the decision, are potentially wide-ranging simply because uh, Roe v. Wade has been a matter of settled precedent for 50 years. And that means that it has been the basis for a lot of other decisions about a lot of other things, not merely abortion. So, uh, you know, it, it, this precedent has served as the basis uh, for, you know, because the precedent found this right to, to privacy in the Constitution, uh, that then uh, created other rights. And, and so you do have people saying, at the same time, you know, the Alito draft opinion uh, explicitly says this only applies to abortion. This reasoning I'm laying out here, this decision that I am setting out for the court, this precedent I am potentially creating for the court, overturning the old precedent, uh, I, I intend for it only to apply to abortion. And, and so he explicitly says that he sees this differently because, uh, because it is a matter of human life uh, than, than some of those other uh, rights that have flowed from the Roe decision. Uh, but that may be out of the court's hands, right? You know, once, once you change uh, the, the precedent in this area, that does open uh, the possibility for new lawsuits to be brought that say, okay, well now, you know, if, if that Roe precedent uh, has been knocked down, maybe that does mean that, you know, it, 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 may, it creates an opening for people to challenge the other rights that have been built on the basis of that precedent. We're all waiting for this ruling to come out, and it's going to be a wait until sometime in June. Um, we're g Anita, very quickly, what are you looking for next on abortion uh, as we await the ruling? Yeah, I'm just really eager to see what these next two months bring us. I mean, we expect the ruling probably by the end of June when the term of the Supreme Court is ending. And, you know, we've seen protests around the country. We've seen, you know, state officials talking about this. I think we just need to sort of see what these next two months bring in terms of really the politics at this point and if there's really any change in what the Supreme Court is going to do. We'll get to more of the week's biggest headlines after the break. Remember, to join future conversations, you can download our 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. 
This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. Stress shows up in all kinds of ways. In a world that's telling you to do more, sleep less, and grind all the time, here's your reminder to take care of yourself, do less, and maybe try some therapy. BetterHelp is committed to helping you in times of stress with customized online therapy. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com 1A and see if it helps life feel a little bit easier. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest headlines. Gang, it's time to talk about January 6th. And we really need to because the House subcommittee, a special committee rather, investigating the January 6th insurrection took an unprecedented step this week, uh, just yesterday, issuing subpoenas for five Republican lawmakers, including House GOP leader Kevin McCarthy. The committee says each of these lawmakers has been invited to talk to the committee voluntarily. Each of them has refused. So the committee had No choice. That's according to Chairman Benny Thompson. Uh, Shane Harris, um, the committee should want to talk to these lawmakers because we've seen some of their texts. We've listened to some of their phone calls. We've seen their statements on the floor of the House of Representatives in some cases. Uh, What happens next? Well, what happens next is going to be very interesting. And I think we can't say for sure because this is really something without precedent to subpoena this many sitting members of Congress uh, and demand their testimony. Uh, My colleague Aaron Blake has a good piece laying some of this out in the post this morning. And what he lists as some of the options are that Congress could refer members who defied these subpoenas to the Justice Department for criminal prosecution. The committee's already done that in other cases where they've subpoenaed former Trump administration officials who are refusing to testify. Um, The committee could go to a civil court to try to compel these members' testimonies. Um, They could have the sergeant-at-arms try to to detain and arrest them. That seems pretty unlikely. I don't think that's even been done in over 100 years, and it didn't involve a member of Congress the last time it happened. Um, Or they could try to punish these members with fines or stripping them from committee assignments, which is something that conceivably the committee has the power to do when sanctioning its own members. This gets a little complicated in the sense that the committee is investigating the attack on the Capitol. They're not precisely investigating wrongdoing by members of Congress, although they could, I suppose, argue that they are. So it's a little unclear what jurisdiction the committee has to enforce kind of vis-a-vis its own ability to make rules in the Congress uh, behavior by its own members. So this is going to be a fascinating question of how this plays out. Practically speaking, it's not clear to me how this gets resolved before the committee wraps up its work in July. Uh, So you could conceivably see a protracted fight for testimony that even if it ever ends up being given is done well after the report has been issued by this committee or it's wrapped up its work. Anita, there's another option that Shane didn't mention because I know he was waiting for us to talk about it. These five lawmakers could go and talk to the committee and they could they could tell what they know and they could tell the truth instead of, uh, and I'm going to say the word, what has been in many cases participation in a cover-up. Um, the House Republican leader uh, is on the telephone saying that Donald Trump was responsible for the riot and contemplating his resignation. And he has openly threatened companies that participate in the January 6th committee. He has threatened them with political retribution. Uh, There is a word for that, and I think that word is cover-up. These five members are free to speak to the committee and help the country investigate why there was an insurrection. You are right, but I think the reason Shane didn't mention it is very, very unlikely. I mean, they could have come forward and and voluntarily done this, but they didn't, which is why they're now facing subpoenas. Um, I think what's likely to happen is we're likely to see a lengthy court fight of some kind, and and it could go on a long time. Remember, this is why the chair, uh, Benny Thompson, didn't 
you know, didn't really want to subpoena lawmakers. He thought it would end up in a lengthy court fight. He thought it would set precedent that uh, that members of Congress would be subpoenaed. But everything has kind of changed as we've seen the panel just continue. Every avenue they've they've gotten on this has really led back to House members and what they knew, what they talked about with President Trump at the time. And there's, they felt like they really had no choice but to go down this road to to try to figure out what was what was going on. Now, we do get dazzled by news of subpoenas of top lawmakers. It makes sense. I know I got dazzled by it in covering this story. But there was huge January 6th committee news earlier in the week, Shane, sort of behind the scenes. The subcommittee has also obtained new emails from John Eastman. Uh, the attorney who helped Donald Trump in his plot to overturn the 2020 election, the guy who advised Mike Pence on how to send electors back to the states so that Donald Trump could steal the election. New emails detail, though, a new level of scheming unrelated to the Mike Pence stuff that we sort of already know about. Bring us up to speed on what we've learned about John Eastman this week. Yeah, this is really interesting and adds to this fuller picture of Eastman as really being somebody who was trying so many different ways behind the scenes to overturn the election. Um, What the emails show is that he was urging Republican legislators in Pennsylvania at the state level to retabulate the popular vote in the state, which would then throw out uh, potentially tens of thousands of absentee ballots, which would then end up showing Donald Trump with a lead. And the idea here that Eastman had was that by recalculating this popular vote, He posited that this would, in his words, quote, would help provide some cover for Republicans to then replace Joe Biden's electors from the state with a slate of pro-Trump electors, which Eastman appeared to think was also their right to do anyway. So if he thought it was their right to do anyway, why did he need to go tinker with the vote count uh, and give them some cover? He clearly understood that just replacing the slate of electors would be hugely political controversial. uh, controversial, Maybe it would even be illegal. It would certainly be challenged. So to see him kind of conniving to go back and fudge the numbers uh, and sort of change them, I mean, I I think that most reasonable people would think that kind of goes to the basic art of democracy. You don't just get to go throw out votes for the guy you don't like or votes that cast a different way. Um, so that that was pretty stunning. But I have to say, coming from Eastman, who has proposed some, you know, I think what many legal experts have, have criticized as pretty preposterous and wild legal theories for how to overturn the election, I suppose it's not that surprising. It's uh, worth remembering that John Eastman has done everything he can to keep his records and his statements away from the January 6th committee. He went to the mat in court to keep his emails away from the committee. He lost. He has pled the fifth in front of the committee, which is his right, uh, but helps him avoid criminal liability for anything that he might say. So maybe at some point we'll hear more from John Eastman. Uh, But Molly, let me take you to Georgia and to the right-wing propaganda network OANN, because that pro-Trump media outlet was forced to walk back its false claims of 2020 election fraud this week. And this is how they did it. Georgia officials have concluded that there was no widespread voter fraud by election workers who counted ballots at the State Farm Arena in November 2020. The results of this investigation indicate that Ruby Freeman and Wandria Shea Moss did not engage in ballot fraud or criminal misconduct while working at State Farm Arena on election night. A legal matter with this network and the two election workers has been resolved to the mutual satisfaction of the parties through a fair and reasonable settlement. Breaking news from OANN there, Molly Ball, um, which out of context sounds a little weird until you remember that One American News was responsible for hammering 
Georgia election workers with conspiracy theories that sent those workers into hiding, fearing for their lives they had to get security. Why this correction now? It, never mind. It was none of it was true. <laughs> well, as as they as it, they said in the segment, it resulted from a lawsuit and. Uh, the two uh, election workers that had been the subject of a lot of this uh, conspiracy mongering and false claims of election fraud uh, sued the network uh, and and the, and forced the network as part of their settlement uh, to air this kind th- this this correction as it were uh, and and you know they they've done it in what seems to me to be a way that sort of guarantees it will be received in that in the same way, right? It's something we had to do. Like, okay, we had this lawsuit. They're making us say this. Uh, we have to tell you that technically it wasn't true. Is that going to be convincing to the audience of OAN that's been hearing all of this stuff about fraud for so many months? No. Uh, you know, they, it's not like they haven't heard this in, in the mainstream media and all kinds of other sources. Uh, I think uh, people who believe in... Uh, the election fraud uh, conspiracy theory, the false election fraud conspiracy theory, at this point, it's, a, it's an almost sort of theological uh, belief. It really is not uh, subject to any kind of evidence from any kind of source, uh, even the sources that, that sort of originally sowed these doubts. Uh, so that, so I, I'm sure it will bring some satisfaction uh, to, to the election workers in question who were viciously, you know, harassed and hounded and did have to leave their homes and presumably are getting some kind of uh, financial settlement out of this as well. Uh, but uh, in terms of actually turning the tide of the vast swath of the American public that still believes that the election was stolen, I don't see this having much effect. Yeah, I, I don't either. We've covered this story closely uh, at Vice News with our special reporting project, Breaking the Vote, uh, down in Georgia covering OANN. Um, covering threats to election workers all over the country um, and wrote about it a little bit in uh, the weekly newsletter for Breaking the Vote, which I write. I'm not too ashamed to tell you, which you can sign up for at vice.com slash breaking the vote. An interview, by the way, this morning with an Arizona election worker, former head of election security in Arizona, who's, who's faced so much harassment from conspiracy theorists in that state that he started packing a gun. That's what he told me. He was carrying to protect himself, just trying to advance security in Arizona's elections. It's a good time to talk about Elon Musk talking about disinformation, Anita. Um, His purchase of Twitter, that $44 billion, back in limbo. He tweeted this morning that the deal is on temporary hold, I guess because of a concern about spam accounts. I'm not really clear on why that would deter him. Uh, But it comes less than a week after Elon Musk promised to consider reversing Donald Trump's Twitter ban. That's the thing everybody's attached to. But where does the big acquisition of Twitter stand right now? Yeah, it's a good question. He tweeted, of course, (laughs) um, that it was on hold, but he didn't really say much. He just said pending some details on these spam bots, you know, these fake accounts. Um, You know, look, people that are watching this were were already sort of questioning whether this would go through anyway, right? He has to come up with a certain amount of money. He has to have investors. All of that's been a little bit unclear. So it was, you know, we didn't know if this was going to go through. Now he's saying it's temporarily on hold, not really telling us about that. But he has made a lot of comments lately about how, you know, he, he's a guy that says he's for free speech. 
and that he feels like everyone should be out there on Twitter saying what they want to say, uh, including the former president, and that he would return his account to him. Of course, President Trump has previously said that he wasn't interested in that. So we don't really know what that is going to look like. But it's not just President Trump. People are worried that if Elon Musk does go through with this sale, that, that he's going to have all sorts of people on there spewing hate, disinformation, other things out there that, uh, you know, Twitter has really been trying to get rid of. So have other social media outlets. So it's really unclear what the future is going to be first, if it goes through. And second, what Twitter will look like. What Twitter will look like, Shane, I get confused because Elon Musk has said that he believes in content moderation if tweets are, quote, wrong and bad, or if they're destructive to the world. Not bad standards, But he also says Donald Trump should be allowed back on the platform. There's no question that Donald Trump's tweets led directly to an insurrection and a riot on Capitol Hill, one where people died and a presidential election was attempted to be overturned. Um, That's just one example. If you want to talk about disinformation on Twitter, we can spend all day if you like. But I'm not sure that Elon Musk himself has figured out uh, or even wants to deal with the realities of content moderation on a platform like Twitter. Well, and Twitter hasn't even figured that out. I mean, this is such an immensely complex issue when you talk about content moderation and how much can you do by algorithms and how much requires human judgment. I mean, I think a lot of commentators have said they find it very rich to hear this coming from Elon Musk, who is not just a personality on Twitter. He's a troll. I mean, that is the function that Elon Musk's performs by definition and and, and appears to enjoy doing it. Um, Look, even if this deal does not go through, it's given him a kind of turn in the spotlight, as it were, and a chance to, you know, I think in his mind, probably have a pretty big megaphone to try and, um, you know, attack what he sees as the anti-free speech component of Twitter. It's worth remembering he has an out clause in this deal. It'll cost him a billion dollars under the terms of the deal, which (laughs) is not a terribly significant (laughs) amount of money for him. Um, But, you know, it was something that kind of gets missed in some of the coverage is the financing from this comes from the fact that he has basically leveraged uh, Tesla and SpaceX against buying Twitter. So explain that to the investors of those companies. Or why are you leveraging the future of these potentially world-altering companies so you can buy Twitter? Uh, I think it's, it's, it's made pretty, people pretty skeptical, and he, I think he could still back out. All of it shows how the fun of buying something like Twitter and trolling everybody about free speech for $44 billion might become a bit of a pain in the neck when the realities of your other business and the realities of the hard choices, the no fun choices of content moderation become your responsibility. Uh, So we'll be watching that story. That's Shane Harris of The Washington Post. I'm also speaking with Anita Kumar of Politico and Molly Ball of Time. Let's take a pause for some news on climate change right now. Research shows that as our climate crisis worsens and global warming continues unchecked, we're going to see more intense wildfires, especially in the West. This month, high winds and an ongoing drought have fueled massive fires all across New Mexico, and the biggest blaze has burned more than 230 acres. Bryce Dix is a climate reporter from KUNM, Public Radio in Albuquerque, and he's been covering these fires. Bryce, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Where are the fires burning right now? 
So I think before I answer that question, I do want to add a little bit more context to Please. the fires and the scale for some folks. We've had uh, more than more or less than a dozen major wildfires here in the Southwest, with six of them here in New Mexico. We have, uh, in particular, the Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon fire, which you were just talking about. That's the largest blaze in the U.S., and that's on track to become the largest fire in New Mexico's history. It's just shy of it. It's a combination of two fires, um, as the name suggests, uh, one of which was a prescribed or planned burn, for folks who don't understand what that is, um, from the U.S. Forest Service just outside of this small mountainous New Mexico village named Mora, and that quickly jumped its planned containment lines. Um, so it, as you just said, it's contributing to burning just shy of actually 40,000 acres more than you just said, 270,000 acres as of this morning. And that's a third contained. There's also um, another fire of interest called the Cerro Pelado fire that's just outside of Los Alamos National Laboratory and Los Alamos, uh, the town set, uh, the town of Los Alamos, um, which is notorious for nuclear research or whatever. Um, that is about 11% contained and uh, um, has burned around 50,000 acres um, as of this morning. Um, and we have tons of firefighter staff currently battling all these blazes across our state. Um, and, you know, fun fact, all of the nation's water scuba planes, as they call them, are currently deployed to fight the largest fire. That's KUNM's Bryce Dix in Albuquerque. Bryce, thanks for checking in with us and updating us on those terrible fires. We appreciate it. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest news. We'll be back with more in just a moment. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or just to let us know what you think. You can tweet us at 1A. You're listening to the News Roundup. Um, Let's get into the midterms. You blinked and it's midterm season already. November 6th is months away, but these races are starting to stack up all over the country. In West Virginia, former President Donald Trump picked a winner there. Congressman Alex Mooney won the nomination for the seat in his district, running against another member of Congress. He's the latest candidate endorsed by Trump to win. Um, Anita, tell us about this race. Who is Alex Mooney and who is he running against? Yeah, Alex Mooney uh, really won President Trump's endorsement in part because he objected to the electoral count, the Pennsylvania electoral count, as Congress was certifying uh, the 2020 election. Um, you know, he really stressed and highlighted President Trump's endorsement. He talked about his opponent, uh, Congressman McKinley, uh, as cons- insufficiently conservative, you know, pretty much just some some guy that was pretending to be a Republican. Um, and he highlighted that he had supported uh, the bipartisan infrastructure package that passed through Congress. And now, remember, let me stop you there real quickly. Yeah. McKinley's sin, a campaign's a campaign, I get it. McKinley's sin was voting for infrastructure money that, by the way, Donald Trump supported uh, to the tune of hundreds of billions when he was president. His other sin was that he voted to investigate an attempted coup. And now he's out of Congress. Yeah. And he supported, uh, he said President Biden won. So uh, those were all the strikes against him. Um, But Mooney had the right, the right idea because he did win. Uh, This was an interesting race because this is our first time seeing uh, a member of Congress lose, right? These were two members 
uh, thrown into the same district after West Virginia lost a congressional seat after the 2020 census. So we knew someone was going to lose from a member of Congress, and uh, they were uh, sort of we just didn't know really how this would go. And of course, the person who supports President Trump, more conservative, was the one who won in this case. We can go to Nebraska, where the other primary happened this week. Molly, that race was for governor. And Charles Herbster was Donald Trump's, not only his pick uh, for the endorsement for the GOP primary uh, for the nomination for governor, but Trump went all in for Charles Herbster. News came out that Charles Herbster was accused by eight different women, including a state senator, of sexual assault. Trump went to Nebraska and stumped for him even harder. Uh, The Herbster didn't win, though. He did not. And, you know, I think we're going to see this entire uh, primary season play out as a sort of scorecard of Trump's endorsements. Since, you know, these midterm elections are the first national elections of the post-Trump era, so to speak, or perhaps the inter-Trump era if he becomes president again in a couple of years. But uh, sort of the first way we're seeing him, his political operation as an ex-president, what is he capable of? What does he want? Who does he favor? And so, you know, he's endorsed people. And most of these are interesting because they're proxy battles between Trump and someone. As we know, Trump has a lot of grudges. There's a lot of people he doesn't like, particularly within the Republican Party. Uh, So, you know, in a way, the West Virginia primary was sort of a proxy battle with Mitch McConnell and to a lesser extent, Joe Manchin. Uh, This Nebraska uh, primary was a proxy battle with uh, the Ricketts family, which is sort of the Republican establishment in the state and the outgoing governor's operation. Uh, They supported, I believe, the the winner, Pillen, who was sort of the more more established, less controversial candidate uh, versus Herbster. And there was another candidate also in the race. So again, all these races are very complex. Uh, But Herbster did have all of these sexual assault allegations against him, and he chose to approach them in this very Trumpian way, right? They're all lies. They're out to get me. You know, don't believe the the fake news, etc. Buy a pillow. Uh, They're out to get me. (laughs) <laughs> by a pillow. And it and it turns out it turns out if your name isn't Donald Trump that doesn't always work. And a lot of and and you know the the accusers included a a, a fellow state senator. So there were there was a lot of uh, Republican on Republican violence going on yeah. in this particular uh, primary. There's that kind of violence going on in Pennsylvania too, Shane. Um, it's a primary next week, both for governor. But let's talk about the Senate race for just a second. Three candidates in that primary: David McCormick. Uh, Kathy Barnett, who we're going to talk about, and Dr. Mehmet Oz, otherwise known as Dr. Oz of television, Dr. Cure fame. Um, Oz has the Trump endorsement in the paradigm that Molly just mentioned. But Kathy Barnett seems to be surging here. Uh, People don't seem to know much about Kathy Barnett, and she seems to be freaking out a lot of Republicans. Yeah, including Donald Trump, who made the point that there's a lot of things that she said and done in her past that haven't been scrutinized. Well, they are being scrutinized now. Uh, And some of the things that are coming to light is that she has uh, a pretty extensive and documented history of of anti-Muslim and anti-gay statements. I'm not going to repeat them on air, but it suffice to say they are are anti-Muslim and anti-gay. I mean, they are pretty clearly that, and they're they're quite uh, vicious, some of them as well. Um, It's interesting to me that someone with the history of provocative statements 
like this is enough to rattle even Donald Trump. Now, granted, he's picked Dr. Oz, so he does want to sort of keep backing his candidate. But I think that this is there's a lot of misgivings and a feeling uh, that Trump himself actually expressed that if she were the nominee, she would just be so divisive and unpalatable that she couldn't win uh, in the general election uh, for Senate. Um, but this surge is is really it, it's something. I mean, and she's really kind of kind of pulled neck and neck in the polls. Whether that's because of what she said, I, I, I don't know, but we'll find out how this uh, people react to it. Um, but Trump, notably, I thought, did say, um, I don't think she can win, but if she does get the nomination, she'll have my full support. The uh, so, of softest. course, he, does, he certainly doesn't want to, uh, to to lose and then say, I'm not going to back uh, the winner. Always, always back a winner, which seems to be the point in Trump endorsements and the very softest of anti-endorsements there. He's already all in for Oz, but... You can you can sense the the nervousness. I'll I'll be on board with this train if it leaves the station. We're, we will be finding out a lot more about Kathy Barnett if she succeeds here because there were a lot of stories written uh, from outlets this week on her campaign's unwillingness to discuss her background in any way, not returning calls, not returning emails, really trying to leave uh, elements of her not only past statements but past employment, past work, uh, her resume um, out of the public eye. So we'll see. But this week, I want to update you on a report, a very important report from the Department of the Interior, because the department found burial sites at more than 50 federal indigenous of more than 50 federal indigenous boarding schools all around the country. The report estimates that, quote, thousands or tens of thousands of Native Native Alaskan, Hawaiian and American uh, children died in the schools, which operated from roughly 1819 to 1969. The new numbers come from a year long investigation, uh, which we had a whole conversation conversation on back when that investigation was launched. That show is on the 1A website, uh, the 1A.org, and we'll tweet out a link to it on our Twitter, at 1A, if you want to read more about it. The details of that report uh, are really devastating and follow on uh, similar reports of um, assimilation schools in Canada. Let's talk about the economy, though, because the nation is talking about the economy, specifically a nationwide shortage of baby formula. This is hitting new parents hard. Roughly 40% of formula is now out of stock, leaving families who need it with very few options to get it in a lot of cases. Now, there are a bunch of reasons why this this is happening. Anita, um, give us some of the details behind this shortage. I know that one of the reasons is that the FDA actually shut down a major manufacturing plant because the formula was contaminated. Um, That'll lead to a shortage, but that doesn't help it get on the shelves either. Yeah, right. That's exactly what a lot of people are talking about, um, this contamination problem at an Abbott factory. It produces a lot of uh, formula, several several different brands, and they they voluntarily shut down the factory in February um, amid some of these complaints. Um, but it's still not up and running again. And actually, my colleagues had a, a story about this this just this week, saying that it wasn't clear why Abbott and the FDA have still failed to come to some kind of agreement on. Uh, you know, resuming production and reopening that plant. So it's a little bit of a mystery what's going on there. But it's, you know, we've seen this shutdown. We've also seen the general supply chain problems. 
all combined uh, mean that we have this nationwide shortage. Shortage. You saw President Trump, uh, President, excuse me, President Trump. President, I'm remembering my four years covering President Trump. <laughs> President Biden talking about how the administration has spent months on this, and you see Republicans saying, "Look, if you spent months dealing with this, why are we facing this shortage now?" So there's still a lot of things that can be done, but you have a lot of parents really talking about this around the country. Molly, it strikes me that there's a great deal potentially of political salience here on the baby formula issue. Forget about the bad faith attacks. I'm talking about families. Uh, It's one thing in a supply chain crunch to not be able to get your new couch on time and it takes months. That's one thing. It's a very different thing to not be able to buy baby formula when you have twins at home uh, or you're an adoptive parent. Uh, It's another thing entirely. And it it strikes me that that the salience of that for people in their real lives could be very strong. It certainly, you know, tugs at people's heartstrings. It's 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 terrifying for for so many parents. And and one of the interesting and sort of unexplained uh, trends that we have seen that that coincides and exacerbates this is an increase in the share of parents uh, who are choosing to formula feed their babies, uh, and coinciding with a sort of mini uh, baby boom coming out of COVID as well. So you have a huge amount of of, of demand and and this incredible sudden constriction in, in in supply that's really leading to terrible emergencies for so many parents. And and we see on the political side, uh, you know, the an administration that wants to. Uh, appear uh, concerned about people's people's problems, but but has a very limited array of tools to deal with this sort of thing, right? There's just not, and it, and it's similar to the situation with inflation, where we've seen the president come out repeatedly and say, you know, I feel your pain, essentially, and we're trying, and 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 here's some things we want to do, uh, but you know, the 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 government moves slowly. The government has only so so many tools at its disposable disposal to to attack things like this. The administration has even talked about uh, something like the Defense Production Act. Uh, where they can compel uh, companies. They're, they're working with the companies uh, to, to try to get uh, more supply out the door. Uh, but I think it, it, you know, it's one of these problems that if it doesn't uh, get resolved in the short term, is just going to add to people's impression that, uh, that, that you know, the economy is sort, of, is sort of broken in a lot of the, its functions to, to get people the things that they need and, and, and that politicians are not able to solve that problem. Um, guys, I, I, I'd love to take a couple of minutes and talk about what's on your mind maybe that we haven't seen in the headlines this week. One of my favorite things about getting the best reporters in the business on the air with me is that it gives uh, a chance to find out what's in your notebook a little bit, what you've been working on or hearing or what you think might be important that we're not necessarily seeing in the feed uh, every single second of the day. Um, so let's step back for a minute. Um, Shane, what's, what's on your mind? What's in your notebook that we need to know about? Well, you know, it's, it's something that's it's not exactly faded from the headlines, but, you know, I spent a lot of time covering the war in Ukraine, which I'm sure you'll cover more in the second hour. But it's been striking to me the way that that war has sort of entered this kind of steady state where it's grinding almost at a kind of stalemate tempo uh, in the East. And it, it, like I say, it's not receded from headlines, but it is not dominating in the same way and occupying all of the attention. It's competing with so many other important stories. And we did an interesting story at the paper this week looking at the way that the United States has been sharing intelligence with the Ukrainians to help them find and locate Russian troops and even a very important ship in one case, which they sunk. You know, quietly, the United States 
States is getting pulled deeper and deeper into this war. While it advertises the weapons that it's sending, it's much quieter about the other kinds of assistance. And it's been just fascinating to me to watch how much more entrenched we're becoming. Uh, and I'm not sure that the Biden administration uh, predicted that. I think that they were thinking that Russia would come in and take over that country pretty quickly. Mm. And here we are in a protracted war in which we are becoming uh, every day a closer partner in it, uh, fighting Russia. Seems like in many ways, Vladimir Putin's strategy is to cause other countries to become inured and unfocused uh, on on that conflict. Shane, thanks for that. Molly, what's on your mind? Well, it's sort of similar, uh, a protracted uh, crisis that is sort of grinding away in the background. Uh, we still have a pandemic. And this week, we saw the president mark uh, a million lives lost unofficially. That hasn't been the official uh, milestone yet at this point. But, uh, you know, I was thinking as Shane was talking, it's funny that the administration uh, sort of, or, or, or the country sort of expected to quickly declare defeat uh, against against Putin and Ukraine. And, and that uh, expectation was overturned. I think early on in, in the administration, there was a sense that hopefully they were going to get to declare victory uh, over COVID. And, and it has become clear that, that it, in, instead it is just going to become this sort of background noise, something that we live with. And you do hear now uh, public health experts and others saying, well, we've got to brace ourselves. You know, there, there can be more waves coming. This might be another uh, very bad fall and winter. We don't know what to expect. But it's clear that the public has moved on, uh, the, the, the political system, people don't want to talk about it, people don't want to think about it. Uh, so it just continues to sort of grind, grind on in the background with lots of casualties. Anita, how about you? You know, I covered a lot of immigration, and I'm going to go back to that. Uh, you know, it was the number one issue last year. We've had a lot of things that have come up, uh, you know, since then. But, you know, I'm still following how President Biden's administration is still hasn't uh, been able to reverse President Trump's policies on immigration. They recently got rid of one pandemic border restrictions, and that's now in court. So I'm going to be following along to see uh, what happens with that and how much of a political issue becomes for the midterms. That's Anita Kumar, senior editor for Standards and Ethics at Politico. Molly Ball is a national political correspondent at Time, and Shane Harris covers national security and intelligence at The Washington Post. One A's audio engineer and sound designer is Mike Kidd. You just heard him on the fader there. He gets technical assistance from Adrian Danhauser. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of One A On Demand. Chris Castano is our digital editor. You're listening to the News Roundup. We'll discuss the week's biggest headlines from around the world in just a moment. This is One A. Every week we set aside this hour to focus on what's been going on overseas. I think it was a good decision. I, I think that we should have been NATO already. In. We stood alone in 1939. We don't want to stand alone again. In Helsinki, there's growing support for Finland's push to join the world's biggest military alliance. But Moscow already is warning its neighbor to expect, quote, consequences if Finland does join NATO. We'll talk more about that story and make time for news beyond Ukraine and Europe. But first, let's welcome our panel for the hour. Our guests today are Dave Lawler. He's world news editor for Axios. Dave, welcome. Great to be with you. Good to have you. Also with us, Jennifer Williams, deputy editor at Foreign Policy and host of the Negotiators podcast. Jen, it's always good to see you. Thanks for having me. And Jack Detch is here. He's foreign policy's Pentagon and national security reporter. Jack, welcome back. Happy Friday, Todd. 
Happy Friday to you and good to be speaking with all of you. Well, the House on Tuesday passed a $40 billion military and humanitarian aid package for Ukraine. Just massive, that bill. That's in addition to more than $13 billion in emergency aid already passed in March. So together, these two bills represent the largest foreign aid package to move through Congress in at least 20 years. Lawmakers on both sides of the line voted for it mostly. We'll talk about that, but not everybody. Listen. Why don't we actually have a debate on the floor of the People's House instead of the garbage of getting a $40 billion bill at 3 o'clock in the afternoon? Do not be dissuaded tonight by politics. Not be diverted from our support of democracy, which 435 of us support, or freedom or liberty about which all of us talk all the time. Talk is cheap. This victory for democracy is not. That was House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer there, Congressman Republican Chip Roy of Texas before him. Uh, Jack, help us break down how this $40 billion is going to be spent. So about half of it is for for military aid, maybe even a little bit more. The the Pentagon initially asking for about $16 billion in, in recent weeks. Of course, Congress has has pushed that number up. And and one of the things that's important to note is a lot of it has been lobbying by by the Ukrainians. Um, I was just speaking to a group of Ukrainian MPs and anti-corruption activists. They're very clear this package is not enough for what they want, as mm. historic as it is. They they want five to seven billion dollars a month to keep Ukraine's economy afloat and to keep the weapons flowing and higher grade stuff than they've been seeing before. So you're talking about American F-15s, F-16s. MLRS systems that haven't gone to the Ukrainians. Now, none of that stuff has gone ahead yet, but certainly it seems like the the pressure is going to be on for for more, more, more weapons, 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 ammo, 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 uh, and just keeping the the foot on the gas uh, when it comes to just propping up this Ukrainian military that needs a lot of ammunition to fight in the flat terrain of the Donbass. Jen, it sounds like that may be the reason why Congress gave the White House even more than it asked for. They sent more money back than the White House request. And it sounds like that lobbying from Ukraine for their needs really hit home in Congress. I'll I'll add that 57 Republicans voted against this bill. Yeah, you know, I think it's been really remarkable. Um, You know, two things. One, the Ukrainians have just done a really phenomenal job with the kind of public relations push. Um, They've just, you know, been pushing on kind of all circuits here. You've seen, of course, President Zelensky out there giving speeches uh, to basically every legislative body he can think of in the West. Um, You know, their social media presence has been huge. And so I think a lot of Americans, to a degree that we usually maybe don't see in a lot of foreign, you know, overseas conflicts, um, I think a lot of Americans feel pretty invested in this conflict. And and it's a pretty clear, I think, to a lot of Americans who the good guys are and who the bad guys are, right? Um, it, it's not maybe as complicated uh, as some other conflicts. And so we've seen that on, on one hand. And on the other hand, I think, you know, because of that, we've seen a remarkable degree of bipartisan consensus, not not totally, right? I mean, you're never going to get that in Washington uh, on the best day. But I think it has been fairly remarkable to see the bipartisan consensus on support for Ukraine, with the exception, of course, of a few, um, including Rand Paul, who has uh, now thrown a wrench into the works on the Senate side uh, on a vote for this. But in general, I think we've seen a lot of Republicans come together with the Democrats and and really see the need for sending this kind of aid um, and really upping the, the ante on pushing back the Russians. Dave, Jen mentioned 
mentions how invested Americans seem to be in this conflict. Uh, but the national security leaders of this country were on Capitol Hill this week speaking to what could be in the future for this war uh, with Vladimir Putin's strategies and the problems that he's confronting, which could bear on how invested Americans stay in this war. Listen. The uncertain nature of the battle, which is developing into a war of attrition, combined with the reality that Putin faces a mismatch between his ambitions and Russia's current conventional military capabilities, likely means the next few months could see us moving along a more unpredictable and potentially escalatory trajectory. That was National Intelligence Director Avril Haines on the Hill. Um, Dave, she's pointing to um, a dynamic over the next many months that could challenge Americans, certainly uh, resolve to stick with all the many billions that are flowing, uh, but really raise a question of whether Vladimir Putin can grind people down in this war. Exactly. And when President Biden asked for this money, he actually said he needed it for the next five months to arm the Ukrainians. So that's clear they're not thinking about this war being concluded uh, in the short term. This is something that they expect to at least go on for the next several months. Uh, Avril Haines also said that she sees the potential for this war that's currently concentrated in the southeast of the country, in the Donbass, again, spreading beyond if Russia gets the capacity to push further so that actually you could see the scope of this conflict expand beyond on where we're currently seeing the fighting. And I think you're right that Vladimir Putin is probably betting that attention spans in the West have their limits and that if this war is to grind on longer and longer, uh, you know, perhaps the resolve and the unity, particularly in Europe, and that's an important thing to watch because they're bearing even bigger economic costs from this war than we are, particularly on energy prices. And so, yeah, there, there is a potential where if this war does extend, you know, beyond the next several months, uh, drags out into a conflict, attention starts to wane, and also the unity that has been pretty remarkable so far between most of the big Western powers, uh, perhaps that could start to wane as well. That's Dave Lawler, World News Editor for Axios. I'm also speaking with Jennifer Williams, Deputy Editor for Foreign Policy, and Jack Detch, Foreign Policy's Pentagon and National Security Reporter. Uh, Jen, let's talk about what's going on a little bit on the ground. Uh, the southern Ukrainian city of Kherson, uh, first seized by Russian troops during the invasion. Now there's a great deal of pushback. What are we hearing from people currently in the fight there and those who are in charge? Yeah, so um, if you're talking about Kherson, um, you know, I think what we've seen, this is the, that city that's on the on the Black Port. Um, it's one of the few major Ukrainian cities under Russian control. Um, so in, in Kherson, what we've seen is basically there was a, an announcement that they are going to try to seek annexation. Russia going to try to seek annex, uh, annexation of Kherson. Um it's a really complicated kind of situation because the Russians are saying, look, you know, we want to make sure that the people here, uh, you know, this is what they want. And yet they're saying there will be no referendums. Uh, this is going to be a decree based on an appeal and the leadership. So it, essentially it looks like Russia is going to try to do this kind of funky sort of quasi-referenda but not really attempt to annex the, the area. Of course, the Ukrainians are not having any bit of this. Their response was that they might as well ask them to join Mars or Jupiter <laughs> and that they will free Kherson. So, you know, we've seen that. We've also seen, you know, in, in Kharkiv, we've seen a kind of different dynamic there. We've seen Russian troops starting to be pushed back. So I think, you know, it, it, at a broader sense, 
I think what we're seeing is that the Russians are trying to kind of consolidate the territory that they have control, but are still struggling to hold on and to in any way move forward. Now, I misspoke a bit. I suggested that there was significant pushback and some retreat in Kherson. That's actually in Kharkiv, as you pointed out, Jen. Uh, Russian forces there have been in retreat. The BBC's Quentin Somerville reported from the outskirts of Kharkiv earlier this week, and that's where he spoke to Raisa, who was born in the former Soviet Union and is now under attack from Russia. Why didn't the shrapnel hit me in the head so that I would die immediately? For days, she suffered through this. But I hardly feel physical pain anymore. The pain is in my soul. In a time gone by, Raisa's father and Vladimir Putin's father battled Hitler. But that shared memory is now lost to history. Here in Russian-speaking Ukraine, the past runs deep and the suffering brought here won't be easily forgiven nor forgotten. So important to go beyond the headlines and talk to the people suffering in this war, Jack. Um, All of that, when you pull back, raises a ton of questions about the state of Russia's military, how long this war grinds on, what kind of stalemate Vladimir Putin can achieve if indeed that's what he's after at this point, after so many miscalculations at the beginning of his invasion, uh, and, and whether Russians think this is a cause worth fighting for. Well, apparently the polling that, that's still coming out of Russia, over 75% of, of Russians still support this war. Now, you know, of course, the Russians could probably juke the stats on those numbers. But just Im- important to, to think about when you're framing this discussion around the May 9th anniversary that, that just took place and, and the major military parade, although subdued from, from recent years, certainly we have seen the Russians just not performing the way we'd expect them to. And one thing that's been interesting this week, uh, both Western um, and European U.S. officials indicating that the focus on on the Donbass, really that push south from Izium uh, towards Kramatorsk and and other cities, Sovyansk, uh, has really limited places like Kharkiv, uh, where where the Russians were hoping to reinforce and, and really consolidate their gains. They had encircled Kharkiv for much of the war, and now they're much more vulnerable to much more mobile, motivated Ukrainian troops uh, that have pushed them back about 25 miles from the city. So this is what we might begin to see. Maybe not a a clear stalemate, but just this knockdown, dragout fight uh, where the Ukrainians and the Russians are are swapping towns, swapping territory uh, for most of the summer later into the year. As we heard at the top of the program, this week, Finland's leaders announced plans to join NATO, and they said, quote, without delay. Finnish officials say Russia's aggression against Ukraine has changed how it views its eastern neighbor. Um, Jack, this feels seismic, uh, a, a new member in NATO. I mean, that me, NATO membership was always, for as long as I can remember, sort of the sort of the balance of power in Europe. And Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine seems to have set off seismic strategic changes in Europe. It feels like a huge deal. Yeah, but let's pump the brakes for, for a second, Todd, because uh, Turkish President Erdogan today basically casting water um, on Swinland, Finland and, and Sweden's potential NATO membership, saying he, he doesn't support it, that they don't hold positive views. Um, so potentially, you know, some roadblocks within the alliance, we'll see if they can just bowl over them uh, as 
Finland and Sweden appear prepared for uh, June, July votes uh, to get into the alliance. But certainly if it does happen, really a, a seismic shift. And the question becomes for the Russians, uh, do they sort of begin to up the temperature in the region? We've already seen Russian helicopter incursions over Sweden and, and Finland in, in recent weeks, as, as Boris Johnson, the British prime minister, went there this week uh, to propose security assurances. So that Russians could do a lot to, to raise the stakes and raise the temperature as we move closer to NATO membership for yep. these two countries. Finnish President Soli Nanisto has a message for those who think that this would be escalatory against Russia. Listen. For us, uh, joining NATO would be not against anybody. They are ready to attack a neighboring country. If that would be the case that we join, well, my response would be that you caused this. Look at the mirror. Dave, can Turkey derail Finland's bid to join NATO? And if they do, how does this impact a, a, an organization in flux? Yes, hypothetically, Turkey could derail uh, Finland and Sweden's membership. Uh, there needs to be unanimous approval of NATO members to uh accept additional members of the club. Uh, Erdogan is kind of uh, a hard figure to read at times. It's never clear if what he's saying is a negotiating ploy of some sort or if he's actually putting his foot down. If he were to block, and, and we should say, NATO Secretary General has already said that these countries will get swift approval into NATO if they decide to go in that direction. And so this would really be pulling the rug out from under these two countries if Turkey were to block NATO membership, uh, you know, again, I think we don't quite know. This is only in the last couple hours that Turkey's objections have come up, so we don't really know how it's all going to play out. Uh, but from the Russian perspective, you know, if you want to think about the significance of this move, just look at a map, right, where the border between Russia and NATO would more than double if Finland were to join the alliance. So this would be quite a significant step. And yeah, there's a new wrinkle in the works from Erdogan this morning. Now, if you want to see a place where Russia and Russians are not popular, you only have to go to the former Soviet Socialist Republic of Lithuania. NATO member, uh, I've been to Lithuania and you can see it in the monuments. You can see it in the ruined monuments all over the country. Russia is not popular there. And Lithuania this week designated Russia a terrorist state. This week, the country also joined those who believe that the Kremlin is responsible for carrying out what they call a genocide in Ukraine. Uh, Jen, what's the significance of these um, designations from Lithuania um, taking, it seems like, one of the hardest lines of all the countries in Eastern Europe? Yeah, I mean, they, they are basically going farther than pretty much anyone else officially has in terms of really calling for Russia not just to be held accountable for, for war crimes. I mean, they are, you know, straight up saying, you know, this is a terrorist state. You know, they have committed all of these crimes. Um, you know, they cited all these atrocities from, you know, Bucha, Mariupol, you know, all these different cities. And so I think it's, you know, really remarkable in one sense. And the other sense is not particularly surprising, as you said, you know, Lithuania has a long and tortured relationship uh, with Russia and, you know, the former Soviet Union. Um, I think, you know, we are seeing that this is still, you know, e even despite all of that, we are seeing that Russia is getting pretty pissed off about a lot of these, you know, responses, um, even, you know, going back to Finland as well. Um, really not thrilled to see that this is kind of, you know, this decision that Putin made. Uh, I'm not sure he's super really well thought out 
how much it was going to really, you know, anger a lot of the world, but also make, a, you know, a lot of his neighbors really freaked out and really scared and really make them push back. So I think, you know, we're counting on, um, you know, this kind of European kind of solidarity. And I think seeing Lithuania kind of step out in front and really kind of go as far as, as they have it is is pretty remarkable. Now, as this, as this plays out in geopolitics and world diplomacy, it also plays out in Russian society because longtime political activist and member of the art collective Pussy Riot is telling the story of her escape from Russia this week. Lucy Stein was under house arrest in Russia when she heard of the February 24th invasion of Ukraine. She decided to flee the country disguised in the bright green outfit of a food delivery worker. Uh, Jen, it's remarkable. What more can you tell us about the story and how Stein managed to get out of the country? Yeah, this is so wild. Um, as you said, you know, she is, had been under house arrest for more than a year. Um, there are police officers who would patrol the street, you know, right outside her her apartment in central Moscow. So it's not like she's living off the grid here. Um, so basically, she went online ordered a this bright green kind of one-piece suit from a food delivery company, you know, one of those, uh, one of the Russian versions of like a DoorDash or an Uber Eats type thing. Um, she got this kind of big food delivery bag. She put her beloved pet rat in the bag so that she could sneak out her rat. Her rat is actually pretty famous on her social media, so that was kind of a big deal. I think a lot of people would have been worried if she had left Mr. Rat behind. That's his name. Um, and she basically sneaked out. You know, she had a bunch of pre-planned car trips and she eventually crossed the border into Lithuania. She left her cell phone behind so it would look like she was still in the apartment. It was really remarkable. It seems like she put a lot of planning into this. Um, but it's also just, I think, you know, beyond the the kind of wildness of the story, it's also just, I think, really a symbol of just how difficult it is for people who oppose Putin and who oppose the regime. Um, the security is getting much tighter. Their safety is, you know, if it was and already, um, you know, in uh, in limbo, it's much worse now uh, in the wake of, of the war. So I think, you know, it's great that she was able to get out. She's now going on a tour of, of Ukraine. Um, but I think, you know, you have to remember there are still a lot of other people stuck in Russia who are in a similar yeah. situation that she was. This coverage is so important. And, and, and if I can, let me just take a brief moment to point people toward our coverage on Vice News tonight behind the lines in the cities and in the houses, both of Ukraine and Russia trying to get beyond the military strategy into the lives of people affected by this war. Our Isabel Young just came out of Ukraine with a stunning report this week. Um, a bit of a plug, but I point you toward Vice News tonight because we're very, very proud of our journalists and the effort and the, the, the heart and the grit they've been putting in to telling these stories. We're not going to leave the story in Ukraine, any of us uh, either talking on this program or listening. But let's put Ukraine on the table for the moment because there's a lot going on in the rest of the world. Political protests are continuing in Sri Lanka this week, half a world away. They've left nine people dead, more than 200 injured in the country's largest city of Colombo. Sri Lanka's president has refused to step down. But yesterday, maybe as a concession, appointed a new prime minister. Uh, Jack, what are these protests, these deadly protests? in Sri Lanka all about? Well, I mean, major fuel shortages and, and soaring food prices in Sri Lanka have, have really caused this violence that, that we're seeing play out in the streets in, in Colombo and other cities. Now, Sri Lanka's new prime minister probably not going to win a lot of popularity points so far promising as, as he took office that things are going to get worse before they get better. Um, so this this could be a real problem for the government. We're already hearing reports 
of people getting their houses torched, politicians um, by folks who were out in the streets protesting. Um, so it, there's going to be probably a call uh, to, to the world community, to, to the World Bank, to the IMF, to organizations like that, the United Nations, uh, to help intervene with more financial support because uh, it's not looking up right now in Colombo. Is the ruling family in danger of losing power? It's not clear at this point. I mean, it, it seems like they're just going to try and reshuffle the decks, uh, you know, with with the top leadership as as much as possible uh, to try and stave off the blame. Uh, the other question here, too. I mean, these are obviously widespread popular protests, um, fuel, food. I mean, anything that'll that'll get people to the streets. Uh, the question is, how do they get more organized into sort of a, a political grouping? I don't think that's the thing that we've seen yet uh, to push uh, Ragapaksa or, or some of the other leadership aside. Uh, North Korea gang this week had some surprising news. Uh, first reports of coronavirus yesterday. Now, it's a little bit hard to digest and hard to know what to believe coming out of North Korea. Reported their very first cases of coronavirus just yesterday. Now, today, the country says it has, quote, an explosive outbreak. Now, Coronavirus can creep up on you, but it makes you wonder just how long the virus has been in the country for real. Leader Kim Jong-un ordered a nationwide lockdown. For two and a half years, he's insisted that North Korea, which borders on China, has had zero cases of the virus. Uh, David, just how reliable is the information we're receiving about COVID in North Korea? It's believed that nearly all North Koreans are unvaccinated, and that certainly has dire implications. Right. North Korea had the opportunity to get vaccines through the COVAX initiative. They declined those. Their response to the or to the pandemic has been uh, to tighten what had already been, you know, some of the world's most closed borders. Um, now the the virus they're admitting is in the country, um, and the official narrative is actually that up to three hundred and fifty thousand people have uh, had fever symptoms that could be coronavirus, but they don't have the capacity to do the kind of mass testing to figure out uh, how many people actually have COVID. But it actually is pretty remarkable to me. I think if you hear the official statements from Pyongyang, you can probably assume that reality uh, is significantly worse. Um, they've also, it should be noted, they've admitted that they've had real food shortages and the economy has been in really dire straits during the pandemic. Uh, so, you know, this is a country that has suffered tremendously during the pandemic, even when they said they didn't have cases. Now they're admitting they have an explosive outbreak uh, in a population where the vaccination rate is probably near zero. Mm. Uh, it's unfortunately quite a bleak situation to try to contemplate what's actually happening inside North Korea right now. Now, Jen Williams, um, South Korea has volunteered to send vaccines to do mass vaccinations in North Korea. That sounds like a gigantic, formidable, daunting logistical endeavor, uh, but also I hate to put it in these terms, but maybe an opening diplomatically for for real help that could mean uh, something real in relations between the two countries. But where does that stand, South Korea's offer here? Yeah, I mean, you know, like like Dave said, there have been uh, numerous offers and attempts to actually get vaccines into North Korea. Um, you know, South Korea is obviously, you know, the latest. It, it potentially could be, you know, the one that might be acceptable. Um, I've always thought that, you know, potentially China could send some of its Sinovac 
um, because, you know, China and North Korea have uh, not a great relationship, but a better relationship than some uh, other countries have with North Korea. Um, I think, you know, there are a lot of factors at play here. First of all, we've also seen, you know, North Korea is not the only country in the region that has tried for the zero COVID approach, right? So, you know, this locking down your borders uh, rather than focusing on mitigation and mass vaccination. So it's not particularly an outlier in that sense. Um, the other part, though, is, you know, the North Korean regime and Kim Jong-un are, are extremely paranoid of, of outside uh, meddling, outside influence, outside threats. And so, you know, there is, uh, I'm sure, a lot of fear about what is in this vaccine um, on the North Korean kind of perspective, even though, you know, the rest of the world has seen these are very safe vaccines. Um, you also have, you know, just this kind of, uh, it's the North Korean state ideology of, of Juche, of self-reliance, right? So the idea that they would need to rely on an outside country to save themselves uh, just goes against a lot of the kind of North Korean state ideology. So it's really complicated. I think, you know, <laughs> my uh, half-joking idea was, you know, maybe we could just repackage some of the vaccines and put, North, you know, uh, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un's face on them and drop them in and <laughs> maybe just, uh, you know, make it look like it came from the regime. But something's got to give here because we have, you know, roughly 25 million people at really serious risk of, you know, dying from COVID in yeah. North Korea. And it's very serious. We don't need more examples of how COVID uh, lockdowns, vaccines, and the spread of the disease can scramble a culture, even in an open society like this one, how very bad it's been. So we'll be watching how the closed society of, of North Korea deals with its COVID outbreak. Um, guys, I want to come clean for just one second. I did not start this week thinking that I would be finishing finishing it talking about a Marcos. But here we are because it's time to talk about the Philippines and their brand new president. And I got surprised, Jack, because here we are talking about a Marcos, um, the son of Ferdinand Marcos, who established a dictatorship over the country 50 years ago, has been elected president. Um, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., what do we know about him um, now that he's taken power? Well, Marcos Jr. has, has tried to kind of swore, swear off the family name, not, not acknowledging all those abuses that happened in the 1980s and, and of course, the dire corruption, $10 billion stolen from the Philippine state. Um, he's, he's been a governor in, in the north of the Philippines since he was very, very young. Um, he's, he's been around and, of course, sweeping to, to victory in a landslide this week, as well as being a, a congressional representative. Uh, so just a, a mainstay in Philippine politics. And, and this probably has to be a sigh of relief uh, for the U.S., despite the, the legacy of the Marcos name, because for the last several years, you were dealing with uh, a Rodrigo Duterte who was increasingly unpredictable, um, who sort of tried to tilt the relationship towards China until China basically dropped anchor in, in Philippine waters. So U.S. officials hope they're not going to have to engage in sort of this arm wrestling over American troop presence in the region. They, they hope to expand exercises, whatever they can. And remember, I mean, the Philippines is one of five American treaty allies in the region. So, so this is a critical relationship when you talk about countering China, uh, building up American military resilience, as the U.S. still looks to basically focus their foreign policy on the Indo-Pacific, despite everything else that, that we're talking on on the program today. It is a big name to live down worldwide, the name Marcos. Uh, at least in this country, that name comes with connections to corruption, dictatorship, closets and closets and closets full of shoes. If you're of a certain age, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, 
Junior's not to blame, so we'll see if he can get the family name back. Uh, There's a lot more for us to get to on the Roundup this week. And as a reminder, my guests are Jennifer Williams, Deputy Editor for Foreign Policy, Jack Detch, Foreign Policy's Pentagon and National Security Reporter, and Dave Lawler, World News Editor for Axios. Now, as you might know, some of you listening, I... I'm a space nerd, a big one. So I was psyched this week to see the very first image of the black hole at the center of our own Milky Way galaxy. It's known as Sagittarius A star, and the object is 4 million times the mass of our sun. Now, that sounds huge, and it is, but it's actually teeny tiny. Our black hole, a dwarf compared to M87, that first black hole that got photographed just a year or two ago. Remember that one? Ours is actually not that impressive in celestial terms, I'd hate to tell you. Um, Let's start in Mexico, Dave Lawler. Um, So far, 11 journalists have died this year alone. The country has often been one of the deadliest places for journalists to report. Um, How do the latest number of killings compare to others for the year? and, And what's going on in Mexico? Yeah, we're up to 11 journalists killed in Mexico this year. That's um, higher than last year for the entirety of the year, which was nine journalists killed, and that uh, was cited as a record at the time. Uh, It's an incredibly, incredibly dangerous place to do journalism. It's also often very difficult to get to the bottom of who perpetrated these crimes. Sometimes it is connected to organized crime. There have been cases in the past where journalists are killed and the police themselves become uh, suspects or people close to the government. Um, So uh, this is an extremely difficult uh, country in which to do serious, um, hard-hitting journalism, either to report on what the cartels are doing, but also to hold the government to account at at times that can be a very dangerous activity uh, as well in Mexico. So it looks like we're unfortunately on course for a record year uh, in terms of journalists killed there. Grim record indeed. Uh, We have to go to the West Bank, to Janine, where witnesses say Shireen Abu Akhla, really a legendary reporter with Al Jazeera, was shot dead, apparently by Israeli defense forces during a raid. She was also with two other reporters who have blamed the IDF. Uh, Jen, what do we know so far about Akhla's death? Right. So as you said, um, so Akhla was uh, in this, uh, in Janine, in this Palestinian refugee camp, um, apparently reporting on this raid that the Israeli um, military uh, security forces were doing. Um, There were activities that they were doing kind of all around the area, but in this particular area, um, the uh, journalists, including Abu Akhla, who were with, um, who's with Al Jazeera and her, you know, her her crew, um, were all wearing press vests. They were all, um, had gone up to the Israeli forces. Um, According to them, they have, you know, identified themselves, said, hey, we're here, we're press, we're covering this. Um, And according to the eyewitnesses, including the two of the journalists who were with her, um, it looks like there was no actual firefight happening at the time. The Israeli forces had gone in to do this raid, and then essentially it was quiet and shots rang out. Um, It hit one of the reporters. They kind of ran, uh, turned around, and saw Abu Akhle getting hit as well. She was shot in the head. Um, They are are saying it was Israeli snipers because they're saying, again, there was no, like, firefight. The Israeli government is saying, well, it could have been, you know, in the midst of the kind of firefight that Palestinian militants um, were shooting maybe they they shot kind of wrong and accidentally hit her or something like that. But it's looking like, you know, lots of eyewitnesses who were there on the ground and, you know, not just random people, but trained journalists who are saying, no, 
it, it had to be an Israeli sniper. Now, it, again, it's still, you know, there's video that shows kind of the moment of it. Um, the Israelis put out their own video showing this kind of other situation that was happening in a different part of the camp. And they said that's where it could have happened. There's been forensic kind of, you know, um, open source analysts looking at it and journalists saying there's no way that that one over there, that incident could have, the bullet could have made it to where she is. So it's really complicated and it's turned into a really big kind of, you know, political uh, um, flashpoint that's happening. And then we had, you know, a big incident just now uh, during her her funeral where Israeli security forces um, apparently fired kind of flashbangs and and gas. Yeah, that that Um, funeral turned violent. Rocks were thrown. Police responded in in an escalatory fashion, at least according to the the early news reports. Right. And and there's just really kind of disturbing video. It, you know, again, I, I, I've only seen this one clip, right? I wasn't there. I don't know what happened on either side. But the clip that you can see that's going around basically shows, you know, this group of, of Palestinians, including pallbearers, holding up Abu Akhle's coffin, you know, during this kind of funeral procession. And you just see Israeli security forces kind of all of a sudden surge toward them and start beating many of them. Um, you see these kind of pops and, and, and flashes go off of smoke. Um, and the coffin starts to fall and they almost drop her coffin. And everyone's kind of screaming. So, you know, regardless of, uh, you know, I think the details, um, I think that the the optics of this are really not great uh, on the Israeli side. Uh, it, it is definitely causing a lot of anger, um, a lot of calls for, you know, independent international investigations to actually hold people accountable. And many, you know, Palestinians and others saying they don't trust the Israelis, um, the Israeli government to do, a, you know, a fair investigation into what happened. It was said this morning that Abu Akleh may be one of the most famous and recognized Palestinian faces in the world right now. Um, I'll give the last word to Palestinian journalist Rushdie Abalov, who says, I think this is the biggest national anger, grief, and sadness since the death of Yasser Arafat, the second largest funeral in Jerusalem in 50 years since 2001 when Faisal al-Husseini Let's take it uh, back home just for a second, gang. Even though this is the international edition of the Friday News Roundup, um, we have to talk about the Pentagon and we have to talk about the defense secretary because the former defense secretary, who is Mark Esper, said that he prevented, quote, dangerous things from happening worldwide during his time in the Trump administration. These revelations are tied to Esper's memoir. Of course, he has a book out. That's when Trump administration officials tend to speak like this. Uh, But he talked a lot more about his time in the office at the Pentagon with Nora O'Donnell on 60 Minutes. At various times uh, during certainly the last year of the administration, you have folks in the White House are proposing to take military action against Venezuela to strike Iran. At one point, somebody proposed we blockade Cuba. These ideas would happen, it seemed, every, every few weeks. Something like this would come up, and we'd have to swat them down. Uh, Jack, you spend a lot of time covering the Pentagon uh, and the military. What do you take away from these revelations uh, from Mark Esper in this book that he is currently selling? What's what's always interesting, Todd, when these books come out is to see sort of how shaky the, the status quo that, that we seem to think is rock solid 
always is behind the scenes. One thing that's just just fascinating about the Esper revelations is just the degree to which Trump would would put these things out on a wall in in meetings, whether it was the Venezuela uh, invasion, whether it was striking against Iran. Uh, but the White House really never had the bureaucratic know-how to push this, you know, through the bowels of the Defense Department, through the combatant commands. And that's where Esper was able to get the upper hand in, in some of these bureaucratic fights. It also speaks to a, a lot of score settling, I think we're going to see in the national security community as we approach 2024 and, and Trump potentially looks to, to run for another term in, in office. Um, you know, we saw this fighting basically between mainstream GOP appointees um, and it perceived Trump loyalists throughout the department in 2020, basically, I mean, akin to a civil war, really, um, uh, just the suspicion that we saw. Uh, don't be surprised if, if that begins to play out as we're looking towards uh, 2024 and the Republican primaries. I want to talk a little bit more about that because that's important. Let me play you another clip from Mark Esper uh, from the interview where he talks about what he called the four no's between him and then Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, actually current Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley. Listen. The four things we had to prevent from happening, and one was no strategic retreats, no unnecessary wars, no politicization of the military, and no misuse of the military. And so as we went through the next five to six months, that became the metric by which we would measure things. Now, people have gotten used to this clip, Dave. Hang on. This is an extraordinary admission from the Secretary of Defense saying that he and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff had a plan to prevent the commander-in-chief from abusing the military, starting a war, politicizing the military in his last six months of power. It's something you can't blow past. It's an extraordinary thing to say, book or no book, and it has extraordinary implications. Absolutely. I mean, uh, the chain of command is pretty clear between Donald Trump and Mark Esper. Donald Trump is the commander-in-chief. Esper works for him. Um, you know, I think it's important the point that Jack called out that some of the things that Trump would throw out there, he didn't actually have uh, the know-how or the internal allies to follow through. I remember my colleague at Axios, Jonathan Swan, reporting toward the very end of the Trump campaign that Trump had actually tried to order that all of the troops be pulled out of Afghanistan basically immediately before he left office. And there was, you know, a, several uh, things standing in his way bureaucratically. And by the, you know, sort of a few minutes later, he, he kind of gave up on it. He, he thought, okay, this is not going to be achievable, uh, but not because he didn't want to do it. You know, there, there are uh, real questions here about what the president's, uh, you know, what the authority of the secretary of defense or joint chief of staff uh, should be to actually block the intentions of the president when it comes to foreign policy. There's a difference between advising him to go a different uh, route and actually actively undercutting uh, what the president is trying to order. Uh, Jen, Mark Esper said on Fox News this week that he thought Donald Trump was a threat to democracy. He listed the reasons why. Another extraordinary thing for a former secretary of defense to say about a president who may run again. But but Esper's not alone. A, several national security figures from Trump's administration have warned that he is unfit for office. People in the national security apparatus of this country who worked in the Oval for Donald Trump. Uh, John Bolton comes to mind. There are many others. Um, but at this point, there, there's not much to suggest that the former president won't run again in 2024. And, and, and I wonder what happens in national security, military circles, if that happens. Uh, so many Espers, so many Boltons have 
made it clear to the country that they feel from a national security standpoint that Donald Trump is not fit to lead the military, not fit to lead the intelligence apparatus. Uh, that's not just a personal attack from a rhino. That's grave. So where do we go from here? Yeah, you know, uh, even toward the end of the Trump administration's, you know, actual term in office, we saw these problems of, you know, Trump having difficulty finding kind of qualified people to serve in high-level positions in the national security establishment because he had run through basically all the, you know, the small handful of people who were willing to still, you know, work for him. There was this kind of idea that, you know, yes, I may not like him, but I'll hold my nose and serve my country. And I'm, you know, a lot of the national security establishment, especially the kind of staffer level positions, very much see themselves as nonpartisan, as serving their country. But many of them were, you know, very much abused and thrown under the bus as needed. Um, you know, we saw with Fiona Hill on the National Security Council, um, someone who was very much nonpartisan and very much saw her, you know, her service to the country as being outside of, you know, anything related to Trump. And, you know, she was thrown under the bus too. So at this point, I'm not sure there are many people left who'd be willing to work for him. Or those that are uh, wouldn't be the kind that have four no's. It would be ki- the kind that have a million yeses. And in a situation like the ones that have been laid out for us by Mark Esper and others where the president wants to shoot protesters in the knees or send missiles over Venezuela or whatever the idea of the day is, uh, without responsible people willing to say no, you get acolytes willing to say yes. It's a reality we have to cope with in this country as we, uh, as we confront this, this political paradigm that we're still in. Um, guys, I love when I'm here to take a couple minutes at the end of the show to get be behind the headlines a little bit with you since you're the experts. Uh, talk a little bit about what's in your notebook, what you're thinking about just quickly that's not necessarily in our feeds, uh, the reporter's notebook in the couple minutes, uh, the quick minute that we have left. Uh, Dave, you go first. What do we need to be thinking about? Sure. So uh, what's in my notebook is a number of conversations I've been having with a Ukrainian soldier who's on the front lines uh, in the Donbass. I've been speaking to him for a few weeks now, and that reporting will be out uh, in the coming days. Uh, We have a podcast called How It Happened, but also on our website. I hate to be the guy who plugs his podcast, but there we go. Uh, But um, yeah, so that I'm excited to finally bring uh, this reporting that's been a few weeks in the works uh, finally out into the world in the coming days. Don't feel bad. I love to plug my newsletter, which I won't do here, but it's important because that kind of reporting that you're doing uh, with those personal conversations is vital. So plug away. Uh, Jen, go ahead. What's on your mind? Yeah, I'm actually um, looking uh, really closely at the coming uh, elections in Lebanon on Sunday. Um, It hasn't gotten a ton of coverage because there's a lot of other stuff going on. This is huge. Lebanese are going to the polls for the first time since that big 2019 uprising. Lebanon is in absolute dire straits economically, politically. So, you know, whether we can actually see some kind of, you know, movement for change actually, you know, uh, manifest in the polls, we're going to see, but I'm closely watching. Jack, the last moment is yours. Yeah, I mean, what what does victory mean like in, in Ukraine for for the Ukrainians? I, I was talking to civil society activists and officials this this morning. They want the U.S. to come out more stridently and and say that that victory means getting Russia all the way out of the country. Haven't heard that yet, despite Lloyd Austin calling for a weaker Russia. So that's what I'm looking for. That's Dave Lawler. He's World News Editor for Axios. I also want to thank. My other guests this hour, Jack Detch, foreign policy's Pentagon and national security reporter, and Jen Williams, deputy editor, also at Foreign Policy. I also want to thank the wonderful staff here at 1A for welcoming me back on the program. What a pleasure. 1A senior producer is Jonklin Hill. The managing producer is Paige Osborne. 
Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. And Barb Anguiano produces 1A's podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU. It's part of American University in Washington. It's distributed by NPR. I'm Todd Zwillick with Vice News. This is 1A.